0: Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. Orchid or dandelion? Highly sensitive or relatively robust? These are some of the ways that we've conceptualized the concept of how sensitive a child is to the environment in which they are raised. Through a combination of nature and nurture, some of our kids are just that much more sensitive. But are they sensitive their whole lives? What genetics make this happen? What environments are good or bad? None of it is quite as simple as it may sound, which is why I'm so excited to have one of the pioneers in this field joining me to talk about his decades of work on this sensitivity to the environment, or differential susceptibility, as he's called it. Dr. Jay Belsky is one of the first to have identified this differential susceptibility, and has helped lead all of us, parents, educators, and researchers alike, towards a better understanding of how nuanced this issue is, and why so much more is still left to be done. I am so thrilled to have with me today, Dr. Jay Belsky. He is an internationally recognized expert in the field of child development and family studies, as well as a professor emeritus at the University of California, Davis. His areas of special expertise include the effects of daycare, parent-child relations during the infancy and early childhood years, the transition to parenthood, the etiology of child maltreatment, and the evolutionary basis of parent and child functioning. Dr. Belsky's research is marked by a focus upon fathers as well as mothers, marriages as well as parent-child relations, and naturalistic home observations of family interaction patterns. It is both basic and applied in its character. He is a founding and collaborating investigator on the NICHD Study of Child Care and Youth Development in the U.S. and the National Evaluation of Sure Start in the U.K., He has authored more than 450 papers, including his most recent book published by Harvard University Press entitled The Origins of You, How Childhood Shapes Later Life. Thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. So we are going to talk today about a very tiny fraction of your work, because as we just said, you have authored so much. I don't think we could get into everything in any reasonable amount of time, but before we get there, I always ask, "How did you become interested in child development and the functioning of the family more generally?"
1: Well, there's a longer and shorter version of the story. Um, let's 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 abbreviate it somewhat. Um, I'd gone to Georgetown University to study international affairs. Um, found that I wasn't really suited for, you know, preparation for diplomacy. Um, And I was really um, lost. I should say that I had spent my entire childhood with the ambition to go to West Point, um, had been accepted and then turned down the acceptance. So that identity had, so to speak, been left behind. The new identity um, of studying international relations kind of crashed and burned. And I was left with those who know about Eric Erickson's theory of identity formation I was left really lost and 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 undoubtedly depressed um, because I I didn't have an identity. One day, um, basically staring at my navel, I was sitting under a tree at the university when a teammate on the varsity soccer team walked by. This is the end of my. This is this is sometime during my sophomore year, Um, when. He walks when this colleague, this fellow student walks by and he has in tow maybe 10, 15, 24 year olds, like the Pied Piper. Um, so I just call out to him. I don't remember. He was at 20, 30 yards away. Um, where'd you get them? Or something to that effect. Um, and he said, Oh, he volunteers at the Georgetown University Hospital Daycare Center. I said, Oh, And to my everlasting um, appreciation, as he walked away at about 10, 15 yards away, he turns around over his shoulder and calls back and says, they're always looking for volunteers. I had had young cousins as a kid. I always enjoyed being around them. I'm not sure I thought in those terms at that moment, but I went there, volunteered, at the Georgetown University Hospital Daycare Center. This is 1971. Um, And they welcomed a male, obviously, um, as they still do, I'm sure. Um, And that changed everything. I decided at that point, after that experience and another running an after-school program for one to three first to third graders um, who were um, from impoverished backgrounds, that I would like to become a nursery school teacher. And so I transferred to Vassar College because they had a nursery school on campus. There I learned about development more generally, became interested in perhaps being a college teacher. Um, In fact, I didn't get into one of the schools, my first choice school, because my mentor, who thought the world of me, Um, I subsequently learned, wrote in her letter of recommendation that Jay wasn't interested in research, he was interested in teaching, which at a premier graduate program was the death knell. Um, In any event, I end up going to the Human Development and Family Studies program at Cornell, um, and there I got, if you would, seduced by research and science, and that led me to become something I never imagined. Quite frankly, if somebody would have asked me my senior year in high school, what are the chances you'll be a teacher and a scientist? I would have said, in all honesty, zero, zero. Um, and yet here I am. Four, that's... You know, almost 50 years later.
0: Oh my goodness. That's amazing. I have to ask, you mentioned younger cousins. Are you an only child then? Or? No, am no,
1: no, not, not at all. it okay. just no.
0: Siblings just didn't interest you, though. They, they didn't gather a <laughs> bit of having to look after other kids, eh? Well,
1: it, it, not only siblings didn't interest me, you know, a, a large part of my field, and even one of my um, most well-known colleagues, studies genetics. And to study genetics, twins are the ideal sample. Well, I'm an identical twin, but <laughs> g- genetics, it, it came to that it was always nurture more than nature that what grabbed me because as I decided to become a nursery school teacher rather than go into international affairs or rather than go to West Point, this is the early 70s. Um and I decided that I recognized that I was privileged. Not that I neither of my parents went to college, but I had privileges. Um and that I was going to light a candle rather than curse the darkness. So it wasn't a matter of making a big impact. It was a matter of making a difference. A small one was sufficient in the sense of I never had ambitions to do research on daycare. I never had ambitions to be an academic at that point. What turned me toward it was the experience of being with the children in the daycare center and the after-school program and really being, in that sense, a on-the-line service worker, Um, rather than, you know, um, an egghead academic, which I became.
0: (laughs) Well, we're all glad you did, given how much you've been able to contribute to this. So thank you for that. You know, today we're talking about your work on the idea of differential susceptibility. And this is, you know, a fraction of what you've done. Um, And so we still are only going to get to a fraction of that, I think, because there is so much now out there. But you are one of the first researchers to ever even focus on this idea that one's environment might differentially affect how different children develop. Um, And I mean, it's an amazing concept when you think about it, because science is generally all about you know, the general patterns that occur for everyone. So you really broke away from that. So how did you even think of that back at the beginning? Like, what was the catalyst for that train of thought?
1: Well, the catalyst came from, you know, it wasn't until I was 40 that I discovered evolution. Um, And I had a colleague who got me interested in it, um, got me thinking about it. And I became, if you would, seduced by the evolution Darwinian perspective. And it, you know, in my training and in the field for the most part, the notion of that we, why do we learn anything? Um, Not just for the moment, but to have a skill, a tool for the future. So the argument and the logic of why did emotionally supported, cared for children develop, you know, Empathically, considerately, achievement, strivingly, if that's a word, was because they were being prepared, they were being encouraged and prepared for the future they would likely have. By the same token, why did children who were maltreated, who were harshly treated, become more aggressive and antisocial? Because they were being trained, if you would, not necessarily with any explicit conceptualization for the future they would likely have. Um, But I think it was as much. You know, an interest in investing in economics as well as evolution at the time, which made me realize the future is inherently uncertain. So, if we were all shaped by our past for our future, to the extent that the future didn't match up with our past, then we would all be developmental misfits. We'd all go over the proverbial waterfall um, edge. Um, And that said to me that it wouldn't make sense for everybody to be equally susceptible to their experiences and exposures while growing up. That is, we should have some people who are, if you would, malleable, trainable, susceptible, kind of I think about it like wet clay, who can be molded. And we should have other people who what I would call not a plastic strategist that I've just described, but a fixed strategist who came out, this is where I'm gonna be, you know, short of something disastrous happening, I'm going to be who I've always been. Um, and that each of those alternative strategies could pay off in the future, depending on what the future brought, and probably each paid off in the past at some place over our evolutionary history, so that my thinking at the time was that we'd have genes, some people have genes for plasticity, and other people would be lacking those genes or those gene variants. Um, and and my original thinking was that this should be going on within families. That if what was most important to living things, human beings included, was the passing on of genes to future generations, the ultimate definition of life, really, on this planet, and a lesson, a fundamental lesson of our of a Darwinian um, and Hamiltonian worldview about evolution, then if you produced all your children who were equally susceptible and tomorrow turned out different than today, they'd all fail. If it turned out you didn't produce any who were malleable and tomorrow turned out like today, then you wouldn't have optimized their probability of success, including reproductive success, mating and passing on genes and taking care of their offspring, who could then do the same thing. So all this said to me, was that families, both within families, we should see the diversification of progeny who were more and less susceptible to their developmental experiences, perhaps most especially parenting and family relationships.
0: So I'm going to kind of veer off and take something you've said there that struck me because I think it makes a ton of sense, especially the within-family context. How do you think that gets affected when we suddenly see a shrinking of the families so you know you think historically there's often been lots of kids you could see greater variability now if you think about like a western construct we've got you know these one or two family one or two child families does that alter the kind of evolution that we might expect going forward
1: um (laughs) (laughs) i mean the answer is gonna obviously be it could Um, But I I think you're right. In a a lot of ways, um, you're putting all your chips in one or maybe two baskets. Um, You know, you hear stories about people who have one child and God forbid some terrible disease or COVID or does them in. And my response is, you know, that's why you always have, that's why you have two children because one's an insurance policy for the other. In fact, This is how life has always worked. The more risky tomorrow is, depending on where you live and where you grow up and what you're exposed to and what your ancestors have been exposed to, the more offspring you have. Because maybe to have four grandchildren, you need to have six children because of the risks they face. But in a modern world, to have four grandchildren in an affluent society, maybe two kids get you that job done. So we're shrinking our families with an understanding, not necessarily conscious, that the future risk terrain looks very different yeah. than it once might have, or it does someplace else.
0: Yeah. I do wonder in the long run too, how that's going to affect the kind of what we'll get to, but the distribution of these various traits, which ones become more applicable to the type of risk profile we have going forward. But as we get there, so you mentioned genetics, we've talked about susceptibility. One of the things that you've talked about in your work is something you've called about the cumulative genetic plasticity. And this seems way more complex than just being genetically predisposed to something. Can you tell us a bit about what this means and how it relates to differential susceptibility?
1: Yeah. um, Let me make some analogies. Okay. If you want to be healthy is Staying away from a lot of fatty food enough. If you want to be healthy, is getting exercise enough? If you want to be healthy, is eating your protein, your healthy carbohydrates, your vegetables, your fruits enough? No one of those things may be enough, but the more of those things you do that you accumulate, the more likely you are to be healthy, have a good immune system, live a longer rather than a shorter life, all other things being equal. Well, in the early days when, and just like that, we've had a long history within the study of human development of creating something called cumulative risk. That if I know you were maltreated, you were poor, your mother was depressed, you grew up in a a violent neighborhood and you went to a lousy school, I have a lot more predictive power. I accumulate those risks than if you only had three of those, or two of those, or one of those. In other words, as risks accumulate, vulnerability, adversity, the effect of adversity becomes more powerful. When we started measuring genes, people measured them one at a time because they were so expensive. These are called candidate genes. And different genes kept popping up in the literature as potentially being, quote, what I call plasticity genes. And so my thinking was, hey, instead of looking if having this plastic would-be plasticity gene would make you more susceptible to environmental influence, what if I put several of them together that had popped up in the research literature that made them look like plasticity genes? So that became cumulative genetic plasticity. That is, you had multiple genetic variants that pointed in the direction of making you more susceptible. So the more you had, it seemed to me, a good hypothesis would be, the more likely you would be susceptible. In the same way, the more environmental risks you face, the more likely you're gonna have problems, the more health behaviors you engage in, the better your long-term health will be. So it's just really applying that thinking to singular candidate genes.
0: Are there still people focusing only on the singular candidate genes or have most people kind of transitioned towards this thought?
1: Well, actually, what has happened is that we've gone from, no, singular candidate genes are are dead because what, what happened was geneticists discovered really to their surprise that even if you were looking at genotype, phenotype associations like genes for aggression, genes for schizophrenia, that individual genes that might be related to schizophrenia accounted for so little of the variation in who got schizophrenia that they realized that came to realize that most phenotypes, schizophrenia, aggression, good looks, good eyesight, whatever, curly hair, were a function of many, 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 many genes and even accumulating a select few candidate genes was misguided. So they moved to something as genes got more, got much cheaper to to measure, they moved moved towards something called GWAS, um, Genome-Wide Association Studies. So now I could take, initially it was like a thousand gene measurements and it became a million gene measurements and now relate those to schizophrenia or aggression or curly hair and discover a subset of maybe 800 or 1200 or 3000 variants that collectively seem to be related to curly hair or aggression and that kind of thing. Now, the complication is that we don't really have a construct, okay, so aggression, schizophrenia, curly hair, those are all phenotypes, and they're measurable phenotypes, reliably. We don't really have a phenotype for, or we haven't really had a phenotype for plasticity, developmental plasticity. In other words, the whole idea of differential differential susceptibility is let's treat susceptibility to environmental influences as a trait in the same way we treat height or curly hair or green eyes or intelligence as a trait. Well, those other things are easily measured and therefore they can be explored in genome-wide association studies and find 50, 800, 8,000 genes that seem to predict those. But we don't have a reliable measurement of of plasticity. So we could sort people into being more and less developmentally plastic because if we could, then we could link up this 10,000 or a million genetic variants with plasticity. Now, somebody tried to do this in a very imaginative manner. We can get into that. I'm not sure you want to, though.
0: I would love to, please. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm fascinated by this because it
1: well, is. What I decided to do was, um, and unfortunately, very young, he passed away, um, and I'm blocking on his name, which is unfair, and it will come to me because she should get all the credit, is what he did was he said, you know, if you take identical twins, like me and my brother, who share 100% of their genes, in some cases, those identical twins are very similar to each other. In other cases, they're more different. They may not be usually different, but they're more different. And he surmised that perhaps that reflects differential developmental plasticity, that those who were different were having different experiences in each other, and that was shaping them. Those who were very similar were also having different experiences in each other, but those weren't shaping them. So what he did was he took anxiety as a measure of children and had a large sample and divided that into those who were more similar and those who were less similar, the twin pairs on anxiety. And so now he had two groups, and now he did a GWAS, whole genome association study, and said what genes distinguish, what gene variants distinguish those more similar and less similar identical twin pairs. And now the big question becomes, is that a general, has he detected genes for plasticity in general, or has he detected genes for plasticity that affect anxiety? And we don't have a good answer to that question yet. But his ge- what is interesting is that his gene subset has been used most recently with colleagues of mine, and, and I'm involved in this, in fact, it was my idea, to look at how marital couples having difficulties responded to marital therapy of a certain well-evaluated kind. And what we discovered was that couples that had more of these seemingly, quote, anxiety plasticity variants or general plasticity variants, because we can't be sure, they benefited from the marital therapy more than the other people who didn't. And and, and this brings us to a very important issue, which is we read all the time about a treatment that is effective. But that doesn't mean it's equally effective or even effective at all for everybody. And and so what this raises interesting possibilities is the day may come when we can figure out, should you get this treatment? In fact, in this week's Economist magazine, there's a story about this in terms of drugs for certain illnesses. They call them pharmacogenes. And if you carry certain variants, then the drugs work. If you carry other variants, then the drugs don't work will apply the same thinking to behavioral interventions, to families, to children, to workers, to soldiers. We're always trying to influence people. Um, And we make the assumption that something that is found empirically, evidence-based to works, we glibly think it works for everybody. Well, of course it doesn't. And if you asked anybody who did that work, they'd say no. But the implication seems to be the takeaway message seems to be that yes, it does. So, in other words, if we can identify plasticity genes either for anxiety or phenomena that are related like to anxiety, which may have something to do with marriage, um, then we might decide, you know what, this treatment won't work for you because our genetic analysis says you're not, it's not going to work. We'll have to find something else. For you, a genetic analysis reveals that people like you benefit from this treatment. So now it pays to give you this treatment. So maybe the day will come, as it will with drugs, or it already is with drugs, where we can be more efficient in our application of expensive treatments and maximize their efficacy and go look for different things for other people. Because one of the interesting questions becomes, and I think we've sort of answered it recently, in fact, I talked earlier about what I call plastic strategists and fixed strategists, because talking about two types of people, some people call them orchids and dandelions. I don't use those terms, mostly because I didn't invent them, and I'm envious of the people who did. A catchy ter- terminology is a, is a useful thing. Um, and, but that suggests that there are two types of people. And what my latest work is revealing is that with two things not only is plasticity more like a dimension or a gradient, that you have some people or think of a bell curve. Some people are probably susceptible to almost no exposures, except maybe getting dropped headfirst from the 14th floor. Other people are probably, and in both cases, they're very few, very susceptible to almost any exposure. And then in the broad middle, there are people who are susceptible to some exposures, but not others or other exposures and not still others. Um, you know, I always make the observation to bring this point across that I seem to have benefit from developmental training. I was susceptible to it. But I have every re- reason to believe that if I would have got musical training, it would have, you know, fallen on deaf ears, that it's just not where my sensitivities are. Um, so am I plastic? or fixed. Well, maybe when it comes to music, I'm fixed, but when it comes to developmental training, I'm plastic. And in fact, the latest work is beginning to show that, that that, that some kids, for example, look like they're more susceptible to peer influences than to parental influences. And other kids are, are susceptible to both, and other kids are susceptible to neither. We even recently looked at the assumption that what happens early in life matters more than what happens let's say in adolescence and lo and behold what we discovered was that for some kids what happens early is more important for other kids fewer of them actually it's what happened later for some it's both developmental periods they're susceptible to and for others it looks like they're real fixed strategists. they're not susceptible to either so in other words It's kind of like, my metaphor I often use is turning up the microscope. You know, if you turn up the microscope to a 5,000 power, not that I know much about microscopes, and you're looking at a cell, you're not only inside the cell wall, you're not only inside the nucleus, you might be inside the mitochondria. You don't know where you are. So the first thing you have to discover is there is a cell wall. Then you have to discover there is a nucleus. Then you have to discover, in other words, you have to earn your entry. So, I think my general notion to begin with, I don't think this, I know this, was that you're going to have people who are more malleable and not. And then it became more of a dimensional notion as opposed to orchids, dandelions type thinking. And then it became susceptible to what? So, people who may not look susceptible to the effect of peers on their antisocial behavior may be highly susceptible to the effect of harsh parenting on their antisocial behavior or vice versa so i think we're moving and and, and this <laughs> there's a part of me that doesn't like this why because it makes the world and development so much more complex and complicated it's like sometimes i say i wish there were only two genders or two sexes because then we wouldn't have you know male brains female brains male physiology female bari- physiology there's more to know it's more complex well In this case, we're not going to just have orchids and dandelions. We're going to have people who vary along a continuum in greater and less susceptibility. And then they're going to differ in terms of what they are more and less susceptible to.
0: That is a lot. Um, And I have, well, a lot of thoughts from that. But the first one that comes to mind is you mentioned, because I have notes here on that paper, the adolescent study, finding these differential effects at different ages. How much do you think it has to do with the development of the brain at those different points? Like adolescence, as we know, a very kind of big development time, as is early childhood. Do you think if we focused on, do we need to focus on those big times to kind of see this susceptibility? Or do you think it's... Well, I think, you know,
1: it's open season. I've kind of me and a few others have opened up a big can of worms that raise all sorts of questions like you're asking. In fact, one of the things I'm most interested in, I find most intriguing, is the people who raised the orchid and dandelion distinction, um, Tom Boyce and Bruce Ellis, two of my colleagues, they thought of that variation in developmental plasticity as being environmentally induced, that, that, that the quality of the experience children had growing up influenced whether or not they were more versus less developmentally plastic, i.e. whether they became orchids or dandelions. I never denied that possibility. I never thought about it, quite frankly. I was just thinking in genetic terms. They didn't deny the possibility that it could be genetic. They were just thinking in environmental terms. So the first thing we have to appreciate is that this differential, let's take the timing question, being susceptible early, being susceptible later, is that a function of genetics or early developmental experiences? whether or not it is or isn't what else is going on now um, i would think the brain has to be involved in most of these things um hormones can be involved the microbiome can be involved i think it really is um open season on what are the biological more psychological and social processes that and genetic ones that lead one to be more or less susceptible. You know, maybe it's because I was a premature baby that that had something to do with my lousy musical ability, okay? Maybe it was because I had young cousins who I spend time with that that promoted a susceptibility to developmental understanding. I'm just talking off the top of my head here. The fact of the matter is we just don't know. And that is a research agenda for the next way, you know, beyond my career to discover. um, Because and this is important because even if it's genetics, it could be that environment turns on and off those genetics, epigenetics. Even if it is the brain, it could be that with certain pharmacological agents or even experiences, the brain could be rewired to make one more or less plastic. Even if it's hormones, it's possible at some point, or the microbiome, that something can be done to adjust that to make. Now, now life gets dangerous here, because imagine a world in which Adolf Hitler can turn everybody into a Nazi by putting something in their drinking water, so they become susceptible to Nazi ideology, or communist ideology, or Trumpian ideology, or let's say you have another crazy person who wants to do away with susceptibility and make everybody a fixed strategist so you have a tower of Babel. Nobody can influence anybody else. So um, beware of what you wish for here in either the capacity to induce plasticity or reduce plasticity once we understand the mechanisms of plasticity.
0: It is a scary thought. Um, I certainly... I'd never thought about the changing of plasticity in that way. I've always thought about it being malleable on its own terms, but not intentionally malleable, if that makes sense. It's
1: it's also the case that we scholars and we people who study humans think of being plastic as inherently good, but it can be misused. I mean, just imagine if the Chinese and the way they're treating the Uyghurs could give them a pill, make them maximally plastic and then brainwash them effortlessly. They wouldn't have to lock them up. They wouldn't have to spend all this time in re-education camps, etc. They could just, you know, do it much more cheaply and easily. And I hope they're not listening.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I don't think so. But yeah, genocide suddenly becomes a whole lot or cultural genocide becomes much easier in that sense. One of the the areas that I think you found some differing plasticity in that I want to ask about was the effect of socioeconomic status. And I'm thinking here of the work on um, the Child Health and Human Development Study of the Early Child Care and Youth Development, um, kind of found this differential effect of, of quality of daycare and quantity of daycare based on socioeconomic status.
1: Well, it wasn't, it wasn't so much. Yes, what it was, was that we were looking at two distinguishable effects of childcare. We had found in our work, and this is a big project with lots of people, that more time spent in childcare from birth through age four and a half was associated with somewhat more aggression and disobedience. At the same time, we had found that Higher quality of care during the same developmental period, meaning more attentive, responsive, stimulating, and sensitive, and caring care, was associated with somewhat better cognitively and linguistic development. So now the question became, why were some – okay, now the question became, okay, in each of those cases, there was variation in the degree to which children were affected. And when we found that some children were more affected by um, lots of time and care on their problem behavior, we discovered that that they were more likely to be in more well-off families. The kids who were less affected by time and care were more likely to be in less well-off families. Um, And so... I, I think the the answer we came up with there was that in some ways what's going on is in, in, in affluent, well-educated, caring, sensitive families, using child care often is, you can think of it as trading down in the quality of care you're going to get. Even in good quality care, it may not be as good as what you get at home or would have gotten at home. Okay, so more time and care is leading to more problem behavior. For the poorer kids, it may be that these environments, irrespective of quality, you're trading up. You're getting a better environment in terms of its stimulation and considerateness than you would be getting on average at home. Um, So that was the speculation that led to looking at a difference in child care and, and family background in terms of who's affected. And, and do you th- well never mind I I'm going to skip that. Keep going.
0: <laughs> well, I was going to ask that do you think there's a link to the genetic plasticity with some of those? Do you think that oh. SES is something that might modify that plasticity? Like you've talked about drugs may in the future okay. modify it, all these things, but well, something SES- like socioeconomic status?
1: Right. I would make a distinction here. On the one hand, you could be asking me, maybe the reason the more affluent kids were more susceptible is because they carry genes for susceptibility. Okay, that's one possibility. I don't think it's likely, but it's possible. Until somebody can really test it, it's open season on the question. Um, And it's not a bad question. Um, The other issue of... Socioeconomic status goes back to Boyce and Ellis's thinking about environmental regulation or shaping of plasticity, because interestingly, what they observed was that the very the most what what, what their theory and evidence has come to support is that the, is that what they call a U-shaped, a, a, a U-shaped, an inver- a U-shaped relationship that is. For kids who get really good care and for kids who get really bad care that induces plasticity. So those kids, and it's for kids in the middle range who don't get, who who don't, and the environment doesn't induce plasticity. So from that standpoint, maybe the reason the more affluent kids were more affected by childcare, as we've just observed, was because their home environments was inducing developmental plasticity. Again, We don't know that for sure. It's a hypothesis. It's an interesting question. It's testable. But hasn't been tested yet.
0: Yeah. No, it's, I just think about also the effects of SES on so many other factors, thinking of syndemics theory and whatnot, about how it just seems to interact with so many other factors that it.
1: But remember, again, um, that's the average.
0: Yes. And,
1: and, we all hear stories about, you know, this is the other thing that goes into this differential susceptibility thesis. There are kids who come out of problematic environments that do just fine. They're kind of like fixed strategists who, you know, whatever they were exposed to was water off a duck's back. And by the same token, we have children who come out of seemingly healthy, well functioning, affluent, supportive, caring, um, devoted families who, you know, don't follow that script. They could be fixed strategists who simply have, you know, playing a different instrument, so to speak. Um, So so it's an interesting question of, you know, what role social class is playing. Do we have genetic variation across the classes, which is related to plasticity and susceptibility? And, or do we have those variations in social class inducing and developing and fostering differential susceptibility high or low
0: or as i would think almost a mix of the epigenetics of it of having
1: well the epigenetics would need to be go into that in both yeah. cases because yeah. I mean, even if it's even if i carry the genes for de- okay take me for example um i went into study development let's say i have genes that predispose me to excel there. If I hadn't gone into the developmental field, maybe my epigenome would be different, and I wouldn't have, if you would, the understanding I do today, OK? Or it might have been, as I you know, floated the long shot idea to make a point earlier, that maybe if I hadn't been exposed to young children at a young age, my cousins, then my epigenome would have been different, and I never, and, and when that kid walked by, when that fellow student walked by with all those kids in tow, I never would have asked them where'd you get them, because I wouldn't have a sensitivity toward children.
0: No, very true, very very true. I want to jump back to what you talked about earlier about this differential view, kind of getting away from the orchid and the dandelion, this binomial view of of each side to this more normal distribution of everyone in between, and we have it. Um, which obviously is is the research you've found recently. And it certainly does pan out that it makes, and, and it makes more sense, I think, that we would have a broader distribution. But can we think about both normal distribution, but also perhaps a cutoff in terms of kind of clinical significance of these types of behaviors to a person's functioning or what we think about in terms of their environment?
1: Um, you know, there's very few things in human development that are, have cutoffs. You know, if you ask yourself, why is he a schizophrenic and he's not? Why is she depressed and she's not? They're both acting strange. They're both sad. It's because of the bloody insurance companies. They need a diagnosis. A diagnosis requires cutoff. If you don't have, so insurance companies are indirectly and excessively dictating our science. The fact is that most human phenomenon, there are are differences, are dimensional. They're continuous. Obesity, the line for obesity is completely arbitrary. Think of it this way. Let's say you need to score 16 on a depression measure to qualify as depressed. Are you more like the person who's also qualified as depressed who scored 32? or the person who didn't qualify as depressed who scored 15. You're much more like the person who scored 15, but that person's not clinically depressed because the cutoff is arbitrary. So I think we need to think about probabilities here, greater and lesser for most human phenomenon, not you know, what makes you tall. You know, When I grew up, if you were six foot, you were tall and you should be a basketball player. Six foot? And the NBA today is, you know, you're going to have a hard time. You're going to have to be super duper good to make the NBA at six foot. You know, I mean, th- these are just arbitrary, cultural, societal. Who, kn- who knows? You know, <laughs> I-, I just think um, these categorical labels, dependent upon these cutoffs, mislead and obscure as much as they might illuminate. And we, we, we should be leery of them.
0: I agree. Actually, I think it is. And I see it having had a background a bit in clinical psychology of a similar, yeah. you look at your DSM and get your criteria and you're going, so wait, you just cut off by one. They didn't have one extra thing and we just don't treat them for that. Okay. That seems really weird, but well, there we go.
1: Because you won't get an insurance payment.
0: Yeah. Exactly. It's, yeah. So it's not, it it is, it is very arbitrary. So, you know, we've talked about what this is. I hope people get a better understanding about the nuances, the complexity, the everything that has been kind of thrown into the mix as opposed to this dichotomous view. But I think one of the things that I know families listen here that they would be most questioning is this idea of malleability to the susceptibility. So you've talked about, you know, the findings with the adolescents. Some are more susceptible at a young age, some later, some neither, some both. We kind of have all these different trajectories as they go. But for parents who are in the thick of it with kids who either may seem fixed or seem, I think more often you hear it from those that seem so susceptible to the environment, there's a Parental pressure to be perfect for them. Um, but they do tend to question is this kind of the trait they're going to have for life? Is there something parents can do to help with that ebb and flow throughout development? Um, can they predict if it's going to change? Like, what, from a parental perspective, you're parenting a child that may have this differential
1: susceptibility? Right. I, I think. You know, it's a complex question and really depends what the child's behavior or trait is that we're talking about. Um, You know, take a a child who's biting and you tell him no, a toddler, okay? Um, And you keep telling him no, um, and it's not working. Well, that may just be a case of wrong strategy. You need to monitor your child and prevent the biting. Yes, it means you have to keep an eye on him or her, and this is often a stage kids go through. Not all kids bite, but some kids do. But very few kids, you know, bite forever, um, kind of thing. So, but and but then we can look at something like real inhibition or shyness or higher level of anxiety. Now, interestingly, these kids um who are often talked about in terms of the sensitive person or the sensitive child, a woman named Elaine Elaine Aaron has highlighted this seem to be very developmentally susceptible and the key here is for better and for worse so and 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 enabling these children to be less susceptible takes some skill that is to say if you're just shoving them into situations that scare them that immobilize them etc you're not doing them any favors or yourself. You're not going to turn a square into a round ball. If you don't do anything and just accept the child on his or her own terms, then that child is likely to stay anxious. But now, if you take that child and sensitively, which varies for every child in every situation, encourage, enable them to try something to do something, to be there with them and maybe reflect upon it with them afterwards. That wasn't so bad. What do you think of that? I don't want to do that again. That's okay. Next time they did it. Oh, that was fun. I would say to them, remember what you said last time? I don't want to do that again. That is, those are children, you know, you can, you can pick up a violin. You can not pick up a violin. That's like not doing anything about the um, anxious child or you can pick up the violin and just make a lot of noise that's like pushing the kid or you could learn metaphorically and i think it's an interesting metaphor actually to make love to the violin to recognize that this violin can make music but it takes a certain sensitive treatment um and so but there may be other traits for example that the kids Um, really is highly active and you can tie him down to a chair or you can say, I'm going to get him outside and exhaust him every day. I'm going to get him involved in sports and that kind of thing where you channel those fixed attributes that are hard to modify into something disciplined and useful.
0: Do you think that many of our our structures in our society are conducive to allowing parents or children to approach the way you did like i think about schools daycares which you've had a ton of experience researching and
1: you really hit on something incredibly important you know we're a society these days and rightfully so that is very much concerned about diversity but you know what when it comes to how you're supposed to be, we own, we have this idealized, romanticized view of you should be secure, curious, ambitious, achievement striving, empathic, cooperative, caring. Okay, and everything is moved in that direction, and so you're forcing people or children who are not of that pers- those persuasions naturally. To, you're basically telling them that doing other things is bad, wrong. And that is, we need to tolerate more diversity in how we let kids behave. You know, obviously, biting is not one of those things. But there are a lot of, you know, I can remember being in my fifth grade class and being very confused because a good friend of mine used to get up in the class and walk around during the class. I I never quite got that. Well, I suspect that the teacher had spoken with the parents, and this was a strategy that instead of saying, Steve, sit down, and struggling with the kids, they just tolerated this. Now, obviously, there are limits on what you can tolerate, but that was a case where every round peg doesn't have to be forced into a square hole. And while there are certainly things we don't want our children to be, come everyone, you know, it's like this leadership training. Why is everybody supposed to be a leader? What would happen if everybody thought of themselves as a leader? I mean, it's just crazy that we have these, why does everybody have to be an A student? Um, You know, we just have these, this ideal, if you look at nature, it comes in all sorts of variations, all sorts of developmental pathways can work out and yet we are continually funding our kids all too much toward one set of values, goals, strategies for what you're supposed to be Um, rather than valuing difference and variety, tolerating it and watching what it can become. You know, in that sense, imagine if you had six musical instruments, and you treated everyone like a drum. What kind of music would you make? Think of your children as different musical instruments. What kind of music um, could they make if we paid attention to their musicality, metaphorically?
0: I will just share my own experience with exactly what you're talking about. My daughter has dyslexia. And early schooling is all about reading. And if you don't read, you are not succeeding and you are not doing things right. And yet she is a brilliant artist. She is absolutely spectacular. And it took us a while to find the right fit for, you know, education that was going to work for her without trying to force exactly what caused massive anxiety and everything while still working on it. But accepting a slower pace and saying, hey, you know what, maybe you can do something a little different in letting us know how you understand the material that we're going over. Um, But it is, I I hear that. And I think it's really important that parents take that that home in general, because I think it's such an important lesson. I have one more question, if you have the time here. Um, Well, two more, really. But uh, (laughs) the first one has to do with the idea of the acceleration of development that I know you've also studied. So early life adversity can lead to, can, and again, not does, but can lead to this acceleration of development, um, kind of this this early life kind of development going on. Do you think that might affect potential sensitivity later? Like when I think about your adolescent study and some of the kids that might have modified their susceptibility, might it be that they kind of experienced a bit of this this early development and a shift towards just a different profile from that?
1: I think it's a really interesting possibility. And a colleague of mine, Willem Franken, who's from the University of Utrecht in the Netherlands, actually has some theory about that. And his interesting observation is that some of us grow up in very consistent environments, be they good or bad and others grow up in much more variable environments. Sunshine today, rains tomorrow, cloudy yesterday, and so on and so forth. And his analysis is, or his theoretical speculation is, that the more consistent an environment is, and thus the more predictable it is, the more the organism, if it's susceptible again, or if it's highly susceptible, can commit to a developmental strategy. It's almost like If I'm getting beaten every day, if my brother is picking on me every day, if every day I go out and somebody wants to steal the 25 cents I have in my pocket, if that's all I have, then I quickly learn it's a hostile world out there. And I close off that range of possibility of developmental pathways and prepare myself for that world because it looks like that's the kind of world I'm gonna have. Now, I would argue that there are probably some kids who are less susceptible to that. But so here you could see that it's possible that there are children who are getting very consistent environments and who are having their developmental programs consolidated, solidified. Think about it. Think about it this way, that I'm a piece of clay and I'm very wet, but I'm getting made consistently into particular shape. So that dries me out very quickly. And that's the shape I'm going to be. But if I'm a piece of clay and after the person goes to, I don't know if you've done any ceramics. I did in high school, not any good. Um, that if, that if, you, if I'm making something and I'm not happy with it, I crash it down and I add some more water. And then I try something else. I'm not happy with that. I crash it down. I add some more water. So in other words, that program is staying open. So maybe that's the kind of kid who come adolescence is open to the adolescent experience, perhaps for brain reasons, hormone reasons, whatever, where the other kid who's been consolidatedly shaped is already on his trajectory or her trajectory, and you're going to have to move a mountain to get them off it. So yes, I think it's eminently possible that... um, From Will Elm's perspective, the consistency of your developmental experiences may result in you having an open or closed developmental program, which becomes very interesting because it raises the possibility that maybe what you want to do with kids who are growing up in harsh environments is not give them a consistently good environment, but a periodically good one keep that program open until they get in school then give them good schooling consistently cuz what you want to do is not let the family and the community life in early childhood determine their fate but you want to keep adding you know adding water to that clay so it can remain malleable it, um, could that happen it's a good question
0: yeah it, it and i, I just want to clarify but i think what you're saying too is that that malleability or that predictability can go both good or bad in terms of shaping that outcome. Absolutely. It's not Absolutely. like we talk about early life adversity, but also that right. consistent predictable positive environment even if you're susceptible at that age may make you you narrow that path and become fixed in in a different right. way than right. someone else. Right. else. Exactly. All right. So my last question here that I have to ask is where do you, and you've talked a bit about this already, but I am curious about your own thoughts on the future of this research, because there are clearly a million different directions it can go in, but what do you have planned in it? If anything else more, because I know you have lots of other projects, but also where do you think it is most important well, for people to go to next?
1: I think I would love to see, and I'm not in position to do this, I would, in the same way, um, God, I still haven't, my aging brain hasn't come up with his name. Um, In the same way, this young scholar came up with this idea of identical twins and doing the genome-wide association study to detect plasticity, at least in anxiety. What if we did the same thing with regard to humor? What if we did the same thing with regard to athletic ability? What if we did the same thing with regard to shoe size? What if we did the same thing with regard to a whole bunch of different traits, at least ones that we think are susceptible to environmental influence? Now what we would ask ourselves is, we can make a we have kids do we have kids who are highly who look like they are highly susceptible across a whole bunch of different outcomes? Do we have kids who look highly susceptible against some outcomes, others a few outcomes, others only one or two outcomes? So we can now have a cumulative genetic plasticity based on multiple genome-wide association studies. And now we could take, now our hypothesis might be the kids who have more cumulative genetic susceptibility, as I just described, do an intervention with them. They're going to be really responsive. The kids who have some, they're going to be somewhat responsive. The kids who have few, they're going to be a lot less responsive. The kids who have one or two, unless you hit the particular intervention nail on the head, they're not going to be responsive at all. So that's one thing to do. I think the other thing is goes to the, your question, Tracy, about the brain and my elaboration about endocrinology or the microbiome or epigenetics is that what are the mechanisms that instantiate and account for this variation in plasticity? And will we get? can we get to a point of manipulating those? I mean, let's go back to our example um, of the kid who gets the very consistent environment and then shuts down his developmental program so is less susceptible in adolescence. Well, might we be able to pharmacologically or even therapeutically in some other more psychological and behavioral therapy Open up that program so that even if he's turned into an SOB because of the harsh treatment he's gotten that's been closed off, and whatever we try to do all by itself in adolescence isn't working, if we can give a pharmacology or a therapeutic intervention, that will modify the brain network, that will modify the endocrinology. I might not be able to change your history, but I may be able to change the process that is re- it affected, which leads to these outcomes we don't want, or the ones we want to prefer, we want to promote?
0: I would love to see the results of both of those studies. It would be, and I know they'd be more than one study. I have to be very clear. I know it's not just one study. Those would be multiple lines of research to answer those in depth, but That's they would be absolutely fascinating.
1: Right. You know, what I love about the whole differential susceptibility framework. Is that it raises all these interesting questions. And you know, from the very beginning, well, I wrote about the equivalent of orchids and dandelions, that is, kids who are more and kids who are highly plastic, kids who are not plastic. I raised the question: is this a continuum as opposed to a typology? I raised the question. Is this a general trait across all exposures and outcome, or or are these exposure outcomes specific? So we're each a mosaic of plasticities and non-plasticities. And now when we get to those questions, that raises more questions. That's a generative paradigm, and that's exciting to be part of because it takes you places you never thought you'd get to, and you didn't imagine way back when, when you started.
0: It's, it is truly fascinating. And I, I think it just the the background I have from clinical too. I think it answers so many questions that come from there that we don't even get to in therapy with people because we are still at a framework of, of one size fits all, right?
1: Well, I also like to say that, um, and I've even written about this someplace that in some ways the whole theory of differential susceptibility is a get out of jail free card for clinicians. <laughs> because clinicians have, pay, have, have have clients who they're not effective with. Yeah. And most clinicians probably make an internal attribution of what did I do wrong? As opposed to, you know, there are people out there and all this stuff is just water or whatever I'm doing is just water of a duck's back. It's not about me. It's about them. And that's not good or bad. It just is.
0: And I think also from a clinical perspective, opening up your repertoire to different types of treatments, knowing that it's not a one size fits all, you may have CBT for some that works, DBT for others, narrative for someone else that it's really getting to know this person, kind of as you alluded to before, this idea of suddenly we might have a genetic profile for someone, they go into therapy, and you say, ah, you're a good candidate for this type of therapy, and we might actually be able to get to the root of what's going on. Thank you so much for being here today. This has been enlightening as I expected it would be. And it is, this work is so fascinating. And it's even more fascinating that you were doing this many years ago before it was even entering the mainstream thoughts. So it has been truly wonderful. Thank you.
1: My pleasure. I've enjoyed myself. Thank you.
0: That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you're the parent of a child that is highly susceptible to their environment, I hope you feel a bit more empowered and have a bit more knowledge about all you can do. Join me next week as I welcome Dr. Kelly Durkin to talk about her work examining the long-term effects of a state-funded pre-K program. I will say that it may not be what you think, and the answers as to where to go next should be heard by all. In the meantime, please stay safe and happy parenting.